We are continuing our study this morning on the armor of God. We're in our series in Ephesians, and we're going to jump right in this morning. And so open your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verse 13, as we have much to accomplish this morning. And as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We honor you, Father. We are in awe of such opportunity to worship you. Raising our voices to you corporately, Father, we thank you that we can come together as the body of Christ, the local church that you've established to reveal yourself to the world. Father, we thank you that you've counted us worthy to be a part of that. We ask, Father, that we walk in the power of your spirit and that we continue to recognize we are in a battle. We're in a battle with evil, Father, but we recognize that you who are greater in us is greater than he in the world, and we thank you for that this morning. It's through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 6, verse 13, starts by saying, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So we see that God, in his rich mercy, has not set us up for failure and let us battle our flesh, Satan, and the world alone. Scripture tells us that God has given us everything for, for life and godliness. First Peter, right? But what does it actually mean in verse 13 when it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or withstand in that evil day. What is the evil day Paul is referring to here? Among theologians, there's differing opinions on what the evil day is. But I think we can really understand it pretty easily if we just look back to the context of what Paul is talking about. So let's look back to verse 13, or verse 11 actually, verse 11, two verses up. And it says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the evil day in context seems to be talking about the times when Satan and his demons focus their attention on us. When they zero in on our families. When they zero in on our home life. When they zero in on our church community, the church body. When they zero on us personally as individuals. When we're, un when we're under severe attack. When we are in heavy fire with the enemy. When we are in hand-to-hand -hand combat that's going very fiercely. When we are struggling. When we're wondering if we're going to make it out alive. That's what the evil day is. But the evil day is not always wrapped up in fear, pain, and suffering. The evil day could be when we get a big raise and success comes our way. Supposed blessings, praises, and honor could be a part of that evil day as well. The point is the evil day is what we all face because our enemy Satan and his demons hate us vehemently. They want to destroy God's people. But I ask you, what do you think about when you think about 
your adversary, Satan. What comes to mind when you think about the devil? Do we imagine some sort of cartoon character running around in red tights and a pitchfork? Or do we think of the old black and white cartoons where there's a little Satan on one shoulder whispering in the good guy's ear and there's an angel on the other shoulder whispering in the ear? Or do we have the perspective that Satan is the exact opposite of God, a dualistic approach of good and evil, light and darkness? Or do we believe in Satan at all? A new poll came out by Ligonier Ministries that surveyed 3,000 Christians, and this just happened a few months ago. They surveyed 3,000 Christians from around the United States. And 41% of them believed in a literal hell. 41% of Bible-believing Christians believed in a literal hell. That means the other 59% either wasn't sure about a literal hell or didn't believe in a literal hell. And with that, we can assume they don't believe in a literal devil or Satan either. So this is a serious problem when the enemy of God, the enemy of our souls, is clearly not believed or ignored by the majority of Bible-believing Christians, if we call them that. James Montgomery Boyce says this, For whether we turn to the earliest pages of the Old Testament, the prophets, the writers of the four Gospels, the epistles, or even the book of Revelation, at every turn we are reminded of Satan's existence and warned of his activity. So what is our view of Satan this morning? Where does our picture of Satan come from? Does our view of Satan come from the movies? Does our view of Satan come from our families? Does our view of Satan come from our friends? Does our view of Satan come from the churches we've been raised in? The spiritual battle we face is important to know who your enemy is. The question is, do we have a biblical perspective about Satan? Because that's all that really matters. Who is Satan? What is his real abilities? What is his strength? Well, I, let's go to a couple passages that will help us understand our unrelenting, unyielding enemy called Satan. And I have some long passages that we're going to go over. So I'm going to have them on the screen. And the first one we're going to look at, you can just jot this down, is Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And it says this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Let's also look at Ezekiel 28, 14 through 17. Again, it'll be on the screen, so you can just follow along here in Ezekiel 28, 14 through 17. And it says this. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. 
You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. Your, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. So we can look at and put both of these passages together to see that Satan was, was an angel who led a rebellion in heaven against God. Satan and the other angels actually tried to overtake heaven. But instead of overtaking heaven, they were kicked out of heaven. There was no place for them to go, the scriptures say. We learn that Satan's downfall was pride. What a surprise, right? What a struggle we still have with pride today. But we see that we could say it this way, that his looks got the best of him, right? Because it says, as his beauty caused him to want to be worshipped instead of worship the true God. Satan wanted to obey or wanted glory instead of giving glory to God who deserved all glory. And it says that God casted him and his angels down to earth. We also can learn something about Satan by the various names he's called in Scripture. And I'm just going to run through a few of these real quick. Some of the names that describe Satan are as follows. You can just jot these down again. Luke 11.21 calls Satan the strong man. In 1 Peter 5.8, he's called the roaring lion. In Revelation 12, 7 through 9, which we've discussed, he's called the great deceiver of the world, the dragon. In Ephesians 2, 2, he's called the prince, the power of the air. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the God of this world. So what do we conclude about Satan? What do we conclude about our adversary, the devil? Satan is much more powerful and dangerous than the worst of characters that we can think about in the, the past or the present. We think of men like Hitler, Stalin, Muslim extremists, but they have nothing on Satan. And by the way, Satan controls the darkest of individuals like them, like pawns on a chess set. Satan is, is the small god of this world. Man is no match for Satan and his demons, which leads to point number one. Satan is powerful, but he is no match for God. Satan is powerful, but he is no match for God. Here are a few reasons why God is greater than Satan. The first reason God is greater than Satan is because God is creator. The first reason why God is greater than Satan is because God is creator. Satan is a created being like the rest of creation. That means Satan is limited in his capacity and abilities by God. God, knowing the future, created Satan exactly the way he wanted him to be. Second reason God is greater than Satan is because God is omnipotent. 
The second reason God is greater than Satan is because God is omnipotent. What does omnipotent mean? Well, omnipotent means all-powerful. And God is the only one with unlimited all-power. God can do whatever he wishes at any moment where Satan can only do what God permits him to do and allows him to do. James Montgomery Boyce says this, This is God's universe, not the devil's, not even hell is the devil's. God has created hell as a place where he will one day confine Satan and his followers. Third reason why God is greater than Satan is because God is omnipresent. The third reason God is greater than Satan is because God is omnipresent. Let's look at Psalm 139, 7 through 10. And why don't you turn there with me to Psalm 139, 7 through 10. And it says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The psalmist says, if I go to heaven, you're there, God. If I go down to hell, you are there as well. If I go down to the depths of the sea or the darkest parts of the sea, you're there as well. Wherever I go, you're there, God, because you are everywhere. You're omnipresent, God. Satan, on the other hand, can only be at one place at one time. That means Satan can tempt one place person at a time. Fourth reason why God is greater than Satan is because God is omniscient. The fourth reason why God is greater than Satan is because God is omniscient. That means God knows all knowledge. He has all knowledge of the past, the present, and the future. Satan has a limited amount of knowledge, and at best, Satan is a shrewd guesser of the future. Satan doesn't know the future. Only God himself knows what will happen tomorrow because God is sovereign over the future. Nonetheless, nonetheless, church, Satan is a powerful foe. But I don't want us to have a blown up view of him as if God's, if he's God's counterpart of evil, as if Satan is equal with God in any sense, because that's not the case at all. Sam Storm says this, Satan is an angel. All angels were created. Therefore, Satan was created. He is therefore God's devil. Satan is not the equal opposite power of God. His power is not infinite. He does not possess divine attributes. In sum, he is no match for God. If anything, Satan is the equal and opposite power of the archangel Michael. So Satan, the devil, is powerful. He's a wicked enemy of ours, but Satan is no match for an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-perfect, all-sovereign God. What is our view of Satan? 
this morning. We often have an unbalanced perspective of him. Either we think too much of him or we often think too little of him. Point number two says God is sovereign over Satan. Point number two says God is sovereign over Satan. What does that actually mean that God is sovereign over Satan? Well, like everything else, God is in control of all things, including Satan. Satan is not a free agent roaming around wherever he wants, doing whatever he wills to anyone. No, he can only do what God ordains, permits, or allows him to do. And let's look further at that by looking at Job 1, 7 through 12. And again, this will be on the screen because it's going to be a lot to read. So it's Job 1, 7 through 12. And it says this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from making up, walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no, for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not touch do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here we get a glimpse of the unseen realm, the spiritual world. What? Are we blessed or what? We have the opportunity to overhear a conversation taking place. We, have, we, we get to listen to, to God and Satan conversing back and forth. And I ask you, church, who started the conversation between God and Satan? God, right? Who led or steered the conversation between God and Satan? God, right? Who brought up Job? God or Satan? God. Who made the boundaries and parameters of what could happen to Job in his life? God or Satan? God. God, let me ask, if God knows all past, present, and future, did God know the outcome of what would happen to Job? Of course, right? He knew the very next moment what was going to happen to Job. He knows everything, of course, right? He's God, he knows all. That means God wasn't sitting there hoping, oh man, I hope Job does a good job. I hope I have to throw him a life preserver. Hopefully he'll make it through this. No, no. That's not the God we serve. God knew how Job would handle every situation because God knows the future and he's the creator of the future. Is this our view of God? Isaiah 14, 24. You don't have to go there. Just jot the sound. says this. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. 
John Piper says this, the evil Satan causes is only by the permission of God. It would be unbiblical and irrelevant to attribute to Satan or sinful man the power to frustrate the designs of God. Which leads to point number three. God is sovereign over Satan's attacks on us. God is sovereign over Satan's attacks on us. So how does God's sovereignty and Satan work out in a believer's life? Well, to further flesh this perspective out, let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And if you've been a part of our counseling class, this has been a main verse that we have discussed. So turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul, talking to the church at Corinth, says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So this passage is telling us that every time we are tempted, and by the word, way, that Greek word for, for being tempted can also, also mean trials. So it can be temptation or trials that this verse is talking about. So the passage is telling us that every time we are tempted or tried by Satan, the temptation can't be more than what we can handle or bear, the Scripture says. So every temptation... Every trial that we face as believers is filtered through our Lord's loving, sovereign hands first. That's what Scripture says. Scripture says we, can't, we can handle the temptation and trials that we are facing if we follow God's word. Have you ever found yourself saying that you just can't handle a particular situation that you're facing? It's too much for you to bear. Are you following clear scripture when we say things like that? God says, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, to continue on, continue on, because God will not let us be tempted or tried beyond what we can bear. Continue on, because God is faithful. It's not that we're faithful. It's that God is faithful. He, he has his glory and our best interest in mind in whatever issues and trials that we're facing this morning. So we can't make excuses or complain that the temptations and trials that we face are too great or too unique or too much for us to bear. Do we believe God is faithful? That he is sovereign over the temptations and the trials that we're facing this morning? In the midst of the struggles, the trials, the temptations we face, are we depending on our sovereign Lord? Well, let's go back to our main passage. Yes, we're going back all the way to Ephesians, if you're thinking, where are we at? We're in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, and now we're in verse 14. Ephesians 6, verse 14. We'll scratch the surface on this passage. And it says this, 
God's word says, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So, st- so Paul starts by telling us to fasten on the belt of truth. So what is the significance of having the, the belt as the truth? What's the significance in that? Well, Paul nonetheless probably had the Roman soldier in mind as he discussed the armor of God. Why? As you remember, the letter to the Ephesians is, is one of the prison epistles. That means Paul was under house arrest in this time period. That means he was chained to a Roman praetorium guard at this point, And he was looking at the Roman praetorium guard daily, all the time. And the belt of the Roman guards was made out of leather. It held the armor together, as well as it kept the sword in its place. Without the belt, the armor would fall apart. Similarly, truth holds the spiritual armor in place as well. It allows the rest of the armor to function properly. It holds everything in place. If we don't have the truth, we don't have the armor. So I ask you, church, what does our society think of? objective biblical truth, like the belt of truth? Well, we know the answer to that, right? Truth is despised and rejected in a society as the culture says right is wrong and wrong is right. I mean, think about it. Killing a baby is now called what? Freedom of choice. Sexual perversions like homosexuality is now called gay, which used to be a word to describe people that are happy, right? In fact, we have devices, Marxist teachings coming out of many churches that's called liberation theology. Wrong is right, right is wrong in a society that is controlled by Satan. Satan is the prince of this world and he continues to spread his name, his same lies, that the truth is just too rigid. It's just too narrow. It's too confining. It's way too boring. We got to have fun, right? For a culture that wants to do whatever it wants and wants to be its own God. Without the truth, we follow our own feelings. And there is no foundation for reality other than what feels right for you or what truth best suits you. We can be our own boss. We can be our God. In a sense, we hear slogans like, truth is whatever works for you. Or truth is whatever makes you happy. Or truth is following your heart. But Jesus says this about truth. This is his perspective. John 17, 17, just write this down. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen? Jesus says his word is truth. God's word is our anchor. It grounds us when we are being pulled in all the directions from the world, from the flesh, from Satan himself. Which leads to point number four. Truth prepares us to battle Satan. Truth prepares us to battle Satan. Without truth, we can't see right from wrong or or right from wrong or wrong from right. Without truth, we are the blind leading the blind. But Jesus says in John 8, 32, again, just jot that down, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Jesus says when we find the truth, we are set free. We find clarity. We find the direction. We see the path that leads to life. And we're pulled out of the bondage of the world. Which leads to point number five. Christ is truth and he sets us free. Christ is truth and he sets us free. Amen? When we turn to Christ in faith and repentance, our eyes are opened and we begin to see God more accurately. We begin to see ourselves a little more clearer, correctly. We recognize the darkness that resides in us, the sin that continues to draw us away from our Lord. And we begin to see the depth of God's sweet grace that continues to cleanse us. Our darkened hearts, our chains transform the anger, the rage, the bitterness, the malice that so consumed us is now changing by the power of the Spirit as he's changing our hearts, sanctifying us, filling us with, with the fruit of the Spirit like peace, joy, patience, love, self-control. We are no longer controlled by others and circumstances. The Holy Spirit is working in us. He is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Truth does set us free because truth is found in no other name except Jesus Christ. In conclusion, where are you at in the battle? Where are you at in the battle? Are you fighting, battling for Christ? Or are you fighting in your own strength, losing the battle, knowing God wants you to repent and submit to him as Lord and Savior? Are we trusting, walking with the Lord this morning? God is sovereign over all things, including Satan. That means Satan was part of God's plan from the beginning. Satan does only what God allows him to do. But that means God is sovereign over our lives as well. He allows Satan and his demons to attack us, but God gives us all we need to withstand the temptations, the trials, the struggles that we are facing as believers. As Scripture says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tried beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What a big God we serve. What a holy God we serve. What a patient God we serve. What a wise God we serve. What a good God we serve. What a loving God that we serve. What a powerful God we serve. What a sovereign God we serve. May we as a church battle our enemy Satan through Christ who deserves all glory and honor. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We honor you. We are in awe of who you are, Father. Your word says your ways are not like our ways, Father. And the older we get, the more we realize that. The more we recognize how much we really don't know. And how sinful we still are even as christians father we recognize that your spirit is changing us for your glory but we're like paul in romans 7 where he sees the depravity continuing to creep up the selfishness that's following him the lack of love he still has father in his life for you 
we recognize that in us as well. And if we don't, help us to recognize it. But help us never to give way to just letting sin be a license for us either. Help us to truly walk in holiness and to continue to be faithful and obedient to you and walk more in your word, to be more people who have habits that are godly or in practicing righteousness for your glory and honor, Father. Help us not to fear Satan. Help us to fear you because we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.